This is Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering, and Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey will join us this hour from our studio at the State House. All roads lead to the budget, sort of literally and figuratively. She reduced, re, produced her budget plan earlier this week. And when you look at how a governor wants to spend the money, it tells us a lot about who that person thinks we are as a state and how it's going to affect your life. So as we await the governor, two people here to help us understand what she's proposing. Chris Van Buskirk is a reporter for the Boston Herald, and Gin Dunches is a reporter with Commonwealth Beacon. Chris, welcome back. Hey, how you doing? Great. And Gin, welcome back to you, too. Thanks for having me. So, Gin, what does this budget proposal from Governor Maura Healey tell us about who she thinks we are as a state? Well, it's it's uh, in in terms of kind of uh, cost control and how we're growing. It's it's modest growth compared to uh, the last couple of years. It's about fifty eight billion dollars, and you know it's it's also important to say that this is the the the, the kind of the opening volley. The the House and Senate are going to come out with their um, you know values and their spending plans um, in the coming months. And for Healy, she's very much she wants to she wants to uh, you know spend money on. Um, transportation, as well as looking down the road on uh, transportation financing and, and taking a new look at that. Uh, but there's a, a, a bevy of new and expensive proposals um, uh, embedded within her budget. So uh, I'll turn to you, Chris Van Buskirk. You looked at it really closely. Um, w- what's your read on it, her priorities and how it's going to affect people day to day? Yeah, I, I would agree with Gin that, uh, you know, this is a budget in a post-pandemic area where we're seeing slower revenue growth. Uh, you know, she is really relying on the so-called fair share amendment or millionaire's tax to pursue, you know, investments in education, you know, free school breakfasts and lunch, free community college for adults over 25, expanding access to childcare financial assistance, you know, uh, pursuing other initiatives in transportation, boosting funding at the T, uh, a new, a low, co- a low income fare relief program, uh, local road and bridge funding. So, you know, really relying on this, on this, on this uh, voter approved surtax to pursue some of these, these proposals. So let me just give a couple of key kind of headlines to listeners here, right? The governor says that it is a 56.1 billion dollar budget. And that would be about 3% spending growth. She says that because she's not counting uh, money she would spend through the fair share uh, surtax and the medical assistance trust fund, right? Everybody else in reporting, and even you, Gin, says $58 billion budget, because that includes the revenues she's assuming from those sources. And that would be more like a 3.7% spending increase. So either way, spending increases after six straight months where the state collected less revenue than it expected to. And as uh, Evan Horowitz of uh, Tufts University told us yesterday, the way she sort of squares that circle, even though she has said, and she has said this week that the state is tightening its belt, is by spending from a lot of funds that you can spend once and then they go away. Is that pretty much a fair characterization, Gindumptious? Sure. Yeah. And, and if you look at past governors and their budgets, there's always been creative uh, accounting maneuvers. And, you know, a, a more critical way to say it is you're, you're moving you're moving the pieces around, you're pulling from one piece and, and putting in another and, and that's this and that. But yes, that's uh, that's accurate. All right. So we actually reached out to people in our texting group and invited them to tell us the question was, what's the single most important thing that you want a, the governor to focus on right now? And if you want to join our texting group, you send the word Boston to 617 766 
We actually got an incredible number of responses in a period of about two hours. And I'm going to pick Travis and Roslindale right now, who says the governor says it's time to tighten our belt with regard to her budget, but just signed tax cuts for investors in wealthy estates only three months ago when we already knew revenue forecasts were lower. She should be working to fund the family shelter system and press the legislature to allow municipalities to enact controls that help keep families in their homes, giving away money to the rich and then handing, hand-wringing about migrants in our shelter system system is what Republican governors do. Now, that is Travis's perspective. The reason that I brought it up, uh, Chris Van Buskirk, is it hits on a bunch of issues that are coming up. Housing affordability, uh, the overflow from our emergency shelter system, the fact that there were tax cuts last year, and then revenue shortfalls, the fact that this budget is higher despite that. So there's a bundle of things to talk about here that sort of get at the governor's priorities. Can you parse that, any piece of that that you want for our listeners, Chris Van Buskirk? Yeah, I would I would pick two things. I, I would just mention that, you know, Healy has defended the tax cuts in the past, most notably when she decided to slash, uh, you know, nearly 400 million from the FY24 budget. She defended the tax cuts as, quote, absolutely essential, making life in this state more affordable uh, for residents. I'll say the other thing that, uh, you know, to parse through that a little bit is, you know, I'm, I'm certainly curious in what the long term planning is for the emergency assistance shelter program. Obviously, we've seen what the governor wants to do in FY24 and in FY25, but in the years beyond that, what is Healy's calculus here? Is is she expecting the demand on the shelter program to stay where it's at right now, capped at about 7,500 families, or is she expecting it to ebb a little bit and go back down to what we've seen in previous years? And of course, all that comes down to what are we going to do in terms of paying for this program? If it is going to be a nearly billion dollar a year program with associated services, I mean, that's that's a pretty big number to absorb as a state. And just to note for listeners, Governor Healy is the one who capped it at 7,500 families back in the fall. We had not previously had a cap. Her budget proposal actually funds it at 4,100 families. So we're, we're capped at 7,500. We have more than 600 on a wait list right now. The governor funds at 4,100 families and then uses hundreds of millions of dollars of one-time funding to pay for what is actually about a billion dollars in costs this year and next. Um, but then after that, one assumes that she's assuming we'd be back at 4,100 families. Is that a fair summary, Gendumptious? Yeah, and, and to, to go back to the Roslindale residence uh, uh, question there, too, it, it, this kind of depends on whose ox is getting gored, right? You know, uh, someone in West Roxbury, not not uh, uh, too far away, but maybe of a similar uh, or rather different political uh, views might view the emergency shelter as, you know, the the the, the thing that's the problem. Um, I think, you know, Chris and I were both in the room uh, when uh, the, the, the state house, when, when the governor previewed her budget in the state of the state, when she mentioned those tax cuts, not, not everybody in that room, lawmakers uh, and, and other elected officials, not everybody applauded the tax cuts. So it's, it's very much kind of how do you approach this? Um, can we afford what we want? And it depends on what we want. Um, so let's break some other things down here. One of the things that the governor talked about in that State of the Commonwealth Address, which we covered live here on WBUR, uh, was uh, an increase in funding for the MBTA. Obviously, all eyes there as the Green Line pieces of the Green Line are still shut down today with shuttle service. Uh, there's a whole year plan for uh, operating fixes on slow zones. Uh, Chris Van Buskirk, what does she do in this budget around the MBTA and other parts of the transportation system in Massachusetts? 
Yeah, again, you know, the governor is turning to this uh, so-called millionaire's tax, really just a 4% uh, surtax on incomes over a million. That's a mouthful. But she's using uh, the surtax to kind of boost some of the funding at the T. Uh, you know, she has, uh, like you said, in her State of the Commonwealth address, she wants to double the operating funding support, I believe is how she put it, for the T. Uh, other transportation initiatives, she outlined in her budget that she's shuttling uh, $56 million for safety improvements at MassDOT, $100 million for local road and bridge funding, uh, and $45 million for a low-income fare relief program at the T. Um, and does she truly double operating funding for the MBTA in this budget, Gendumptious? Uh, well, that's that's a good question, and I think that that uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, I think a lot of lawmakers are still looking for details on that. Um, I will say, as a, a regular T rider, um, you know that that money uh, really can't uh, come soon enough. Uh, but they they don't have enough time to implement it uh, quickly, and that's why we're seeing these slow zones continue, or or, or the repairs that are taking so long. Um, and and that's kind of what the what the uh, the T's problem has been. Um, they have money. They just don't have the time to fix this all quickly. We're speaking with Gin Dumptious of the Commonwealth Beacon and Chris Van Buskirk of the Boston Herald uh, here on Radio Boston about questions for Governor Maura Healy about her spending priorities, especially with tight revenues and big ambitions. As we wait for the governor to join us from our studio at the State House, it should be a couple more minutes before she gets there. A um, couple of other big areas. Uh, Gin Dumptious, Governor Healy in the state of the Commonwealth sort of telegraphed after this, and it came through in the budget, some big spends on education, especially for little kids. Right, uh, un- universal uh, uh, pre-K uh, for for gateway cities and uh, 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 sc- free school lunches, which is um, you know a favorite uh, a favorite proposal of uh, House Speaker Ron Mariano. And questions, any questions that come up for you as you look at that again? Well, well, again, it's it's just how 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 the the House and Senate will approach this. Um, you know, and, and really kind of, you know, what, what's, again, these are expensive, uh, items, uh, you're going to, you're, you're seeing, or at least I'm, I'm hearing from folks who are, uh, in places that are not gateway cities or could be on the line of being considered a gateway city and they want in on this too. Uh, so I, I think that's, that, that remains to be seen exactly how she, how she navigates that and, and, and what the final budget when it's theoretically, you know, assuming they're not too late and, uh, and, uh, comes out in July, uh, what it actually looks like. So both of you, uh, Chris Van Buskirk, have said something to the effect of it depends on how the House and Senate will approach this. If I'm picturing a tug of war, right, because House and Senate will come up with a bill, a budget proposal. The governor has her budget proposal. There is a back and forth. And in, in the end, suddenly, you know, not suddenly, actually, in the end, after a long time, there's a budget. If you're picturing a tug of war, who's got more people power pulling? Is it the legislature or the governor? Chris, that's a that's a tough question. I mean, I guess an argument could be made for maybe the legislature, which obviously has the power to override any vetoes the governor makes. But I mean, the document that the governor puts out is certainly a you know starting place for the budget. It clearly outlines what the governor's proposals are, what she wants to do with the money in fiscal year twenty twenty five. Who has more power? I guess it depends who you ask. The legislature would probably say that they're, you know, the ones in the control, and the governor would probably say she uh, 
She's the one in control. So I'm watching that, Gin Dumptious, in part because so much of Governor Maura Healey's strategy, especially for new spending, does in fact rely on spending down various funds that are sort of like savings accounts. And when the money's gone, it's gone. And we've seen from both Senate President Karen Spilka and Speaker Ron Mariano in the past that they're not necessarily big fans of that approach. Uh, you know, Spilka's statement on the budget. Quote, the Senate president and members will review what the governor filed as the budget process moves forward. End quote. Pretty noncommittal. So, you know, what will you watch for from them going forward, especially in the next few weeks? Well, so they they have the ability or rather the advantage of uh, going uh, deeper into the year, deeper into the fiscal cycle as revenue, as the revenue picture becomes clearer. If revenues really start tanking, um, then the House and Senate uh, their budgets will be very different from from uh, Governor Healy's. Uh, so the the House goes next, and then and then the Senate before the the two sides try to hammer out a uh, an agreement with you know notifying the 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 governor's office about what they're um, what they're up to. Uh, but really, just kind of looking at the revenue picture over the next couple months, and uh, that could, that could have an impact on on uh, a lot of these programs that she's proposed and and how they're how they're received in the in the two sides legislature. And before I turn to you, Chris Buskirk, uh, Van Buskirk, I'll just tell everyone. When uh, the governor's team is telling us that she'll be in our studio at the state house uh, quite soon here. So just so everyone knows, once we've got the governor, once she's arrived there, I'll end us fairly quickly so that we'll be able to turn the remainder of our time to Governor Maura Healy, who we're awaiting there at the WBUR uh, studio at the state house. Um, the governor, in her State of the Commonwealth address, was really careful to say and has said other places, Chris Van Buskirk, listen, just because revenues weren't what we thought they were going to be, the money we took in, wasn't what we thought it was going to be in those six months. Doesn't mean we're not taking in money. We're not losing money. We're just not gaining as much as we thought we would. Uh, tell us why that's an important distinction, if you agree that it is. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction, probably because we're not in a recessionary environment. We're not, like you said, we're not losing money. We're just not in the pandemic era of boom times uh, where, you know, we were bringing in a lot of state revenue. Federal funding was flowing into Massachusetts at record levels. That's really just not the case right now. And, you know, the budget that uh, Governor Healy put out on Wednesday, I think it conforms to that idea. So, yes, it is an important distinction. We're not in a recessionary environment, but we are taking in less money than, than we were before. All right, Chris Van Buskirk of the Boston Herald, Gin Dumptious of the Commonwealth Beacon. Thanks to both of you. We'll let you go. You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering, and Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is in our studio at the State House. Governor, welcome back. Oh, good morning, Tiziana. Great to have you. Lots to talk about. I feel like there's no issue we can't run through a budget, Governor Healy. And I think that's <laughs> what we're going to do today after you put out your proposal on Wednesday. You talk about $56.1 billion. Others uh, wrap up some other revenues and call it $58 billion. Um, I, I, there, are, there are a lot of brass texts I want to get to. Before we do, I want to ask you your top-level um, summary of this budget I want to spend 56.1 or $58 billion on Massachusetts to do X. Yeah, well, I guess what I'd say is our budget is about working. I mean, if, we, if you just boil it down, uh, I think some key, some key things we're looking to deliver on through this budget is making childcare more affordable and accessible for families, 
making sure that every student is receiving a high-quality education, and that includes improvements to literacy, and improving our public transportation, our roads, and our bridges. In addition, we're continued to, we continue to stay really focused on housing and in passing the Affordable Homes Act, as well as doing things through the budget that are going to help our housing crisis here. So it's interesting. We reached out to our texting group and asked them, what's the single most important thing that you want the governor to focus on right now? We got dozens of responses in a matter of a couple of hours, and their big areas were housing, transportation, immigration, education, uh, and the budget. So obviously, and you know, we got JP to Methuen, Hingham, Lowell, Rutland, all over the place. I'm going to start. That's really good to hear. Yeah, I'm going to start with a tough one um, because it is one that is heavily in the news right now, and that has to do with People sleeping on the floor uh, in the airport uh, in uh, in uh, at Logan Airport. Um, stories of families is Donna and Lowell. Stories of families sleeping on the floor at the airport and shuttling back and forth to Quincy are heartbreaking. There has to be a better way to manage this situation. What kind of creative thinking is being applied to this situation? So, in your budget, you've got uh, $325 million allocated, which roughly would fund 4,100 families, and then one-time funding to close gaps in this year and next year. We're capped at 7,500 families in the emergency shelter system. We've got more than 600 on the wait list. Did you know that it was coming, that we'd have families sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport and way more than the emergency shelter system and the overflow system could handle? Did you know this was coming? This isn't new. I mean, people have been at Logan for for months now. And I think, you know, just to to maybe shed some light on what's happening, um, the the number we continue to see migrants coming into Massachusetts. They're coming into other states. I talk to governors frequently about, you know, the the real challenge this this is. This is not something that Massachusetts created. It is something that has been created by geopolitical forces, by a failure uh, to act on the federal level, and it's really challenging and and hard for all of us. What we have done though from day one is look to get people housing, and you know we are operating in communities all around this state. Um, we continue to do so, and we also instituted work authorization programs, getting getting people expedited work permits, um, because all of these folks who've come here are desperate to work. So that is happening. While we continue to demand uh, funding from the federal government, you know, the Congress right now in the House is sitting on a uh, sub budget request that President Biden put in that would provide much needed funding for interior states as well as make adjustments to the border. And they need to act and do this. But, you know, right now we continue to stand up. We have, we've stood up sites. So folks who've come to the airport um, are, you know, moved uh, to our welcoming centers and processed. And, you know, we've worked with the United Way uh, to stand up more sites. We do have a, a an existing so, and underlying housing issue here, and I'm just the stop lack you of there, available housing. We'll, we'll get to housing in a minute. I'm going to stop you there. Mm-hmm. Several things that we can pull apart there. All right. So um, people do go to the welcome centers. Those are during the day. They can't stay there overnight. And we know that often now they're being shuttled to places like the airport, which are not suited for housing. The airport's no longer providing cots, for example, so people are sleeping on the floor. You, you, you said this isn't new. You've talked about migrants coming in. So first, are you saying that if we were not housing migrants, we would not have a capacity problem in the state's emergency shelter system? 
No, that's not, that's not what I said. And, you know, the, the state's existing emergency shelter system, that's existed for decades. And, you know, as we've seen and the, the Globe has reported, um, that system has been, was under strain to begin with long before migrants started arriving in Massachusetts. And, you know, one of the, one of the things we need to do, we know so clear, is to create more housing in the state. And that's why I came out with a $4 billion bond bill to allow us to go out and do the things to create more housing so that families who have been in emergency shelter don't have to be there so long, who have, will have a place to go. So, um, certainly, you know, migrants and new arrivals have, uh, have put more strain on the system, but it is still the case that, you know, half or more than half of the families in the emergency shelter system are families from Massachusetts, um, and not new arrivers to Massachusetts. Right. So, and I, so let's pull those two pieces apart. Let's stay with the families who have been in Massachusetts or long-term residents. And just to remind listeners Everyone who qualifies for emergency shelter in Massachusetts is legally here, legally qualifies for that emergency shelter. Um, there's a time lag, Governor, between what a housing bond bill would create, whether it's in affordable housing or uh, in, uh, improvement to access to that housing or new construction, and the stress on the current emergency housing system. Um, the United Way has funded five uh, overflow uh, uh, sites. There are some state overflow sites, but the rate of change in this wait list is happening so fast. What do you do about the difference, the rate, the difference there? Is it is it the wait list is just going to keep growing? I mean, how do you handle the difference in speed? Well, you just you just you just try to manage it. You know, we have well, families who are. Well, I'll tell you what it means. What is happening now, for example, there are families who are coming here. Uh, our latest statistics show about half are coming from Florida. Some already had housing, but they've come here to Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a state that has this right to shelter law. We're the only state that, that has such a law. Um, you know, it, 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 people are coming uh, seeking housing. And, you know, in some instances, I, I think we've made it clear that you know, we have reached capacity here. There just isn't housing available. We need to produce more housing. I think people know that. Anybody who's working with folks who are in shelter know how hard it is to find an apartment, to find a place, um, even with a voucher. And so, you know, that's why I continue to hammer home the point about needing legislation passed to get housing production going. But we're just going to continue to manage uh, the problem as best we can. Um, in addition to the United Way, I'm grateful to the Archdiocese, Catholic Charities, and other um, churches who've stepped forward. Um, we continue to operate state sites, and we continue to operate in many, many communities. And I thank the municipalities for their partnership, because not only are they housing people, but they've got young people who are in school right now. And, you know, again, this is a challenging situation for all of us. It is not something that the state of Massachusetts did or created uh, in terms of, of the situation with, with migrants, but I, I will say I am grateful for the way that people have come together. And importantly, many of the migrants who are here now are starting to work because we were able to secure 
work authorizations for them. So and let's that's, stay that's there. really important. Let, so let's stay there. And in fact, you know, when I said all roads lead to the budget, what is interesting is, you know, that the, there's, a, there's a funding and access and capacity crisis. You've called for federal money and for federal policy change. So some big issues happening in the federal government right now actually relate to our state budget. So let's talk about the reform mm-hmm. that you're looking for in the federal funds. Earlier this month, uh, actually just last week, we spoke with Congressman Jim McGovern. We asked about the border and immigration. We told him what you had called on Congress to do during the State of the Commonwealth Address. We actually played him some of that sound. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. We want to speed up work authorization for people, all those things. We want to provide more direct assistance to states, you know, who are bearing much of the burden uh, in terms of sheltering many of these migrants. So, you know, those are things we can agree on. Why don't we just get that done? Why don't we just move forward? What I think is happening here is we have Republicans who do not want to solve the problem. They want to use it as a campaign issue to attack Joe Biden. So fast forward to this morning, National Public Radio's Morning Edition plays sound from former Massachusetts governor and current senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, saying that Congress uh, may very well stymie that based on direction from uh, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. The fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. So as someone who uh, is active in trying to help with elections of governors around the country, who has participated, for example, in the write-in uh, push for Biden in New Hampshire, what do you do as governor on this federal level when that's what's happening as we look at, you know, a really stunning presidential election campaign unfolding? We just could, are going to continue to advocate. I appreciate what Senator Governor Romney said, what Congressman McGovern said, um, and it, it's really unfortunate what we're seeing, but it is Tiziana, the reason that I joined other governors in advocating directly to Congress. We um, sent them a letter last week advocating as a group, uh, a number of us. I'm also working bipartisan. You know, this is this is the, the, the ludicrousy of the situation. We have governors, Republican and Democrat, who know that they have people in their states who will hire migrants, who need immigrants. Um, There are workforce issues around the country. There is a pathway. There is a pathway uh, through work, through taking measures at the border, changing some of the rules around um, the processing of folks in asylum, hardening the border uh, with certain technology and personnel. I mean, it's clear what needs to happen, and it's just a shame that every day goes by and the House is not acting, and there are Republicans there who are holding it up. And it's hurting our communities, it's hurting states, um, and there's no need for it. But in the meantime, as governor, I've got to work with what I've got, right? And that is, how do we get people working? How do we get them housed? How do we deal you know, with burdens on a system that was already burdened to begin with, right? And how do we move forward with a super strong housing agenda for our state? Um, and that's what I'm focused on. So with the housing agenda, that you've got a more than $4 billion housing bond bill. It's got a, a wide range of priorities in it. Um, you, you know, everything from 
um, accessory dwelling units to a local option for cities and towns to charge taxes on uh, sales of property over a million dollars, sealing evictions so they don't permanently stay on people's records, $1.6 billion for public housing, um, a conversion support for sustainable and green housing, lots of different things. It requires some borrowing. Uh, on Thursday, mm-hmm. we spoke with Evan Horowitz. He's executive director of the Center for State Policy Analysis at Tufts University. He he was teaching us about this question of how much we have author- authority to borrow. Uh, here he is. Hey, you know, this bond bill that you're selling, we don't actually have enough money to pay for it. You know, bonds are not free money. You know, you borrow money, but you have to pay it back and you have right. to pay back even more. Right. And the headline number they're talking about, four plus billion dollars, is way more than the state could actually afford to bond. Uh, so one of the things that they're doing in this budget is saying, you know what, let's take some of the millionaire tax dollars, this new tax on really high earners. Let's use that for bonding authority. And that's a, an interesting new use and it would expand our bonding authority. So is is that right? Do you do you take some money from this new tax, and it, what do you have to do essentially, you know, to get permission for the state to borrow more money so that you can do this vision that you have for housing? Yeah, well, you know, Evan, Evan's right, and the state has a very strong bond rating. So what that means is we have the ability to go out and borrow money to do what we need to do, and again, that shows our. Uh, fiscal health really is a state that we have such a strong bond rating. We have the largest amount we've ever had in our rainy day fund in history. And we're really, you know, in good shape that way. So we've got to take advantage of that. Um, We've only got so much to spend in terms of our operating budget. And that's, you know, why I said the other day when I filed my budget that it was responsible, it was balanced, it was within consensus revenue, because as anybody at home knows, you can't spend money you don't have, right? So we've got the budget, but we also have this other vehicle, the chance to go out and borrow money. And that's why we went big on the number because we think that there's a way to get there um, in what would be the biggest housing plan in state history to make it easier for first-time home buyers, for seniors, for renters, to families, you know, to afford a home. We also, as you noted, put forward a bunch of ideas and ways that that we can get there. Um, Accessory dwelling units, some call them granny flats, right? Um, These are ADUs can be built on your property. And around the country where where ADUs have been in place, overnight we see exponential growth in, in the housing units. The UMass Donahue Institute just did a report and they said, look, if you if you support the Governor's Affordable Homes Act, if you support this bill and housing happens, we're going to see generated $25 billion in economic activity, the creation of 30,000 jobs, and most importantly, you know, for our residents um, who are so stressed out about the high cost of housing, it's going to provide relief. Also for employers right now who are really running into it as they search for talent, you know, getting people to move to Massachusetts, stay in Massachusetts, it's uh, it's an economic imperative that we act and act now on housing. We're speaking with Massachusetts. And I look forward to discussions with the legislature, you know, about this. You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm T. Siana Deering and still with us, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey from the State House. Governor, thanks for sticking with us. Lots of things to talk about that affect people's daily lives in this budget plan that you released earlier this week. I want to go back to our listeners who we reached out to, ask them their priorities. And again, they wanted to talk housing, 
transportation, immigration, education. Uh, I'm going to read you two from people on education, and we'll pick it up there. So first, Kumara and Rutland, universal pre-K. That step alone makes the Commonwealth stronger and bridges those divides that exist. I have a daughter who's entering kindergarten in the fall, and I won't even realize the effects of such change, but I'm so glad that future parents and caregivers will. And of course, you want to bring universal pre-K to gateway cities across the state. Also, Beth in Framingham. I think the single most important issue for the governor to focus on right now is the state of our public schools and particularly the way we value or don't value our teachers and paraprofessionals. So let's stay with that value and don't value our teachers and paraprofessionals. And I'm going to take us into the news for just a moment, Governor. I'm sure you're aware that in the city of Newton, teachers are striking. And today is the sixth day with no school based on that strike. It's illegal to strike up from public unions in Massachusetts. Court hearing today on that. Uh, $200,000 of fines as of last night and yet no agreement. Um, What is your view of the teachers' strike in Newton? Well, as I've said, our young people need to be in school. I, you know, this is I feel so bad for the kids. I feel so bad for their parents. This is this is a lot of strain. And it uh, it's continuing. So I really hope that they can re- reach resolution. I would like to see them back in the classroom even while they're uh, negotiating because honestly, you know, our kids are suffering, families are suffering. So that's um that's what that's that's what I see and 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 I really really hope that this gets done. Uh, we're increasingly seeing uh, strikes from unions across the state. Um, should it continue to be illegal for teachers' unions to strike? Yeah, I think there's good reasons why that law is in place. Um, and, you know, I think it's, I think it's important. Our, our young people need to be in school. Certainly educators need to be supported. Um, but, but I'm really focused on the kids right now and families. And, you know, each day that goes by is is another day lost and we need to we need to get them back in school. So let's go now to the cheering for your initiative for universal pre-K. There's a bunch of things for the, our littlest mm-hmm. that you want to do. There's the literally la- literacy launch program, 30 million. Uh, that'll come from the pre- uh, millionaires tax revenue, um, the Commonwealth Preschool Partnership Initiative, funding there for the Gateway to Pre-K initiative. Why this year the heavy heavy emphasis on the little ones? You know, because this is about investing, investing in our people, investing in our future. And it's also a recognition that childcare is something that, you know, is really straining a lot of families. And so we went big. Um, you know, I just believe that we're Massachusetts, you know, and, and we're home to the first public school and public library. And we should have the best childcare system as well. We should make sure that every young person in our state is taught the right way to read, right? I mean, it's so, so important, which is also why we established our literacy launch program. But, you know, I'm just a firm believer in universal pre-K. I also know we can't get there overnight, but we wanted to build on the important steps taken last year in last year's budget and what we put forward and grateful to the legislature for passing last year's budget. Um, we want to build on that by launching what we call our gateway to pre-K. This is a plan to make childcare affordable to thousands of families focused first on all 26 gateway cities, um, but basically to put us on a path towards universal pre-K access 
statewide. We're expanding eligibility. We're expanding financial assistance. We have sustained our historic investments in um, grants to stabilize providers as well. So that's what this gateway to pre-K is all about, you know, investing in our young people, which is an investment in families, right, and their well-being. We've seen so many women not return to the workforce um, post-COVID simply because they can't afford to with the cost of childcare. So, you know, it's it's big. Um, And what my plan will do is guarantee a seat in a preschool classroom for every four-year-old, either at a free or at an affordable cost um, in gateway cities around the state. I was struck, with with that in mind, I was struck uh, by um, the cut to Head Start and the level funding to METCO. Both are evidence-based practices, research just coming out that METCO is particularly effective. If you level fund something and costs go up, obviously you can serve fewer people. And, you know, Head Start being so strong in terms of literacy, vocabulary, et cetera, it made me wonder, is the thought that those are programs that get substituted by something else that you're planning? It, it felt like a circle that needed to be squared, Governor. Oh, God, no. No, no, no. Um, and just so folks know, and I've been a long, uh, long-time proponent of, of uh, METCO and, uh, and Head Start, um, METCO is level-funded, okay? It's not cut, um, but for the reasons that you talked about earlier with Chris, we are facing some headwinds as we've seen revenues not coming in at the rate they've, they've been coming in, and we have a lot of federal funding that's gone away. But to be clear, uh, I'm not cutting the proposal for METCO. I am just proposing that we fund it at the same level last year. And I've worked with METCO over the years. It is an important program. With Head Start, Head Start gets funded um, from a number of places and a number of programs. And we're going to continue to support that um, as as well as supporting Head Start through some funding through our own state budget. But um, we need all of these programs. And under my administration, we have fully funded the Student Opportunity Act. We have made historic, never seen uh, before levels of investments in child care and early ed. And we are building on that in, in this year's budget. So let's move to transportation. Um, and it's, it, I'm looking at these texts from our listeners, and if you could see mm. the number of times that the word MBTA <laughs> comes up mm-hmm. in the text, whether it's Alston or Hingham or Boston or Dorchester. Mm. So Austin and Dorchester says, as a Boston resident, the most important thing to me right now in Massachusetts is the MBTA. What are the new funding structures being proposed so that the T can be fully funded and meet our needs? And of course, that immediately makes me think of of the fact that you are putting together a group to look at the, ta- the Transportation Funding Task Force, which will be composed of public and private sector leaders representing communities of all sizes across the state, to look at long-term funding. Um, who's going to be on this, and what's their directive? Well, uh, folks can go in and look at that, but basically we designated uh, a number of different um, categories, types of people, um, leaders in government and nonprofit and um, the private sector to, to be on this and basically report back to me 
uh, in several months, um, but within this year on what we need to do around long-term financing, right, for transportation. So that's important because we're not about kicking the can on anything, especially on transportation, which is so, so key to so many, uh, to Austin and to people all around this state. So, you we know, is it something like, listen, the gas tax going to go away once we eventually have electric vehicles? Your number one job is figure out what replaces the gas tax. Like what's the, you know, when I've worked on something like that, usually there's mm-hmm. one or two hot buttons that you know it's your job to figure out. What are well, the I couple think, of I think, hot buttons? I, I think that they're, you know, I want them looking at everything, everything that will help us get to a place where we have a long-term sustainable plan for financing transportation in this state. It's true. I mean, you allude to something new that we that we need to account for. As we move towards electrification, as, as more people get out of gas-powered cars, um, and as we make progress on our climate goals, how do we account for that, you know, in, in, in the current system and in terms of revenues? We also have, importantly, new funding opportunities through both federal legislation, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, for example, as well as our own um, Fair Share Act, right? And I made use of both when I made proposals this year in my budget for transportation. So, you know, that's that's something that uh, they'll be considering that and, and, and much more, I'm sure. But, you know, I, I want folks to know that I know safe, reliable, affordable transportation is key across Massachusetts, not just the T, you know, but all modes of transit. Um, so in our budget the other day that we filed, we are bolstering our chapter 90, it's called, our investments in local roads and bridges to record levels, okay? We're able to do this with the addition of the fair share funding. We're also doing things to the T, uh, making a historic commitment by administration to the T, doubling operating support, establishing a system-wide reduced fare for low-income riders, that's important, while also ensuring affordable fare options at our regional transit authorities statewide. How do we do this? Um, well, some of it is from uh, uh, revenues that we have, and some of it's from revenues that we have now new through fair share. I promised people that I was going to follow the will of the voters and make sure that all money that was coming in for fair share would go to the two things that voters wanted it to go for, transportation and education. We used $250 million in fair share funds uh, to expand our capacity um, of our Commonwealth Transportation Fund, which will uh, is it's going to expand by over $1.1 billion over the next five years, and that's going to help us finance more projects. But, you know, broadly speaking, when I talk to you and, and to, to listeners like Austin about doubling operating assistance for the T, people will be like, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about taking what was $127 million last year to double that to $254 million to do the following, modernize equipment and assets keep the system and get the system in a state of good repair, Um, recruiting and retaining qualified workers, improving environmental sustainability and resilience of the system. Um, And as everybody knows, GMA is hard at work with the team in reducing slow zones, which I've asked him to to, uh, 
to, to finish on a, on a schedule and, and with a deadline. So we have a limited time here, and I want to make sure to leave a little bit of time to talk to you about Stewart Healthcare. But I, I, on this, I want to uh, uh, Christian McNeil, Milneil, who writes for Streets Blog, uh, wrote in an analysis of the budget that uh, the doubling is in the transfer from the Commonwealth Transportation Fund uh, line item, but that overall, um, quote, we likely won't see a major increase in transit spending in Massachusetts this year, end quote. Can both things be true, that you're doubling in one place, but overall we won't likely see a major increase in transit spending? Well, we've proposed a major increase in transit spending. We'll have to see, you know, what our work with the legislature results in. Um, you know, I think Christian's uh, right to point out, you know, in terms of the scale of what needs to be done long term for a sustainable, safe, reliable transportation system, we are going to need to spend a lot more money, which is why I want this transportation finance task force coming together now to get after it and to make some you know, forward-looking recommendations. So, Governor, um, we're with Massachusetts Governor Maura Healy. She's joining us from the State House. I do want to turn our eyes for a minute to the nine hospitals uh, owned by Stewart Healthcare. Um, they are in financial distress, concern about them closing, and certainly under service to parts of the state that need hospital service and that serve low-income and vulnerable families. I know you were at the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association meeting this morning addressing this and one of the key things is waiting for whatever plan Steward presents about what they need. If Steward seeks a bailout from the state, will the state do it? Uh, no, Steward's not going to get bailed out. I, I think what's important uh, for folks to know is that you know this is something that we have been. Our administration has been in communication with Steward about their financial situation for some time now. And we are exploring all of our options. Our focus, though, and, and what I want listeners to understand is that, you know, there are a number of systems, um, excuse me, there are a number of hospitals um, at issue. Uh, we are focused on making sure that patients are protected, that they are able to maintain access to, to care, that workers are protected, you know, these places employ a lot of people, and we want to preserve jobs, and to make sure that our whole health care system is is stable uh, and stabilized uh, during any time of, of transition. So, yes, we're, we formally have not received any plan. We await that information um, from Steward and, and its lenders, what it is proposing to do, but we're also not waiting, and we've been engaging with them and other providers um, uh, uh, about just the system generally. We've been engaging with um, our unions and, and folks who work at uh, these these hospitals. And you know, we're we're very focused on you know how do we make sure that we protect patients um, and how do we protect and preserve jobs while ensuring the stability of the whole system. Uh, in our last minute, are there any state laws or regulations that you think need to change or that you want to see changed to avoid something like this happening again? Um, not, not that I can speak to at this time. Not, you know, it's 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 not a great situation when uh, a hospital is 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 claiming or a system is is um, coming to us saying that they um, that they're in real financial distress. Um, but we're just going to continue to work on it. And what's the greatest asset you can rely on right now in responding to this? Well, 
I think just hopefully people's understanding that as an administration, um, we are very, very focused and in communication with all relevant parties. And we're going to work to make sure that patients are protected and jobs are preserved and the stability of the system is maintained. Massachusetts Governor Maura Hilly, we covered a lot today. I appreciate it. I know your time is valuable. Thanks for joining us from our studio in the Statehouse. We'll talk to you next month. Always great to be with you. Thank you.